listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Church. So, uh, Wired Magazine does these really interesting interviews. They're called autofill interviews. And instead of sitting down with a person and, and interviewing them, uh, they, they give them what looks like a Google search. And on that are the, the top things that are searched about these celebrities. And they'll peel off the tape and see the things that people are searching about them. And it's really, really fascinating and really interesting. For instance, you've got like an actor like Paul Rudd who's being interviewed and he picks up what are people searching about him. And, and he pulls off a, a piece of tape and, and it says, is Paul Rudd, and you can tell he's break, bracing himself, is Paul Rudd vegan? And then he's got to answer that question. And it's like, is Paul Rudd married? Is he British? You should see the expression on their faces when they notice large quantities of people are saying, is Paul Rudd dead? (laughs) What are people doing? It's such an interesting way to interview people. But it also made me think, um, what are people going to Google to search about God and the Bible? So, So I looked it up, and these were the top hits Uh, When you just type in the beginning of a question and see what the autofill says about God. So I put in the words, how does God? And these are the the top several results from that. How does God look like? That's an indictment on American culture right now. It's not even a good sentence, yeah. But it goes on, it goes on. How does God speak to us? That's a good question that people are interested in. How does God see me? How does he reveal himself to us? How does God discipline us is a question on people's radar. How does God want us to live? Not bad questions, apart from the first one. I was also interested in what people think about the Bible. So uh, these, these are the actual results. What does the Bible, is all I typed in, and these were the results to that. What does the Bible say about marriage is the first question makes perfect sense. That's, that's a big question in our society these days. Um, but that's the, that's the top search when you put in what does the Bible. The second one uh, piqued my interest. It's what does the Bible say about cremation? Uh, a little deductive reasoning led me to believe if you're single, you're wondering what the Bible says about marriage. If you're married, you're wondering what the Bible says about death. <laughs> Let's not read into that too much. The next one, in order, What does the Bible say about Halloween, divorce, sex, Christmas? And then finally, what does the Bible say about forgiveness? Thank God that was on the list before it moved on. Well, it's interesting and kind of funny. What's really fascinating is how screens have become our counselors, entertainers, instructors, and even our sex educators. Why make the effort to talk to parents, teachers, or mentors when you can privately ask the smartphone in your hand? To carry that another degree, uh, there's a Malaysian comedian who was speaking 
into uh, the observations he made about American culture. And he says, it's like Americans have a competition to see how many screens they can get between themselves and the wall at the end of the day. So they're looking at their TVs through their laptop, through their iPad, through their smartphone. What was that buzzing on my wrist? My Apple Watch. We're inundated with information, infotainment. This idea that, that it's, it's a little bit of information. We're not checking the sources. And it's a little bit of entertainment because of the way it makes us feel. But, but what is this doing to us? That's a question that we should be asking. I don't believe screens are the problem. That's not what I'm here to say today. I think the problem is that instantaneous access to information doesn't equal wisdom. The problem is that too often we are passive consumers of what comes into our mind instead of actively participating in filtering what influences the way that we think. In his book, Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon, author and researcher for the Barna Group, David Kinneman, writes this. I want you to hear this. It's an extended quote. People are looking to their devices to make sense of the world around them. The result, algorithms tell us how to feel about ourselves and think about the world. Screens are profoundly changing the human experience and affecting us in the following ways. Pushing the tyranny of now, framing and filtering reality, weaponizing humor by making snark cool, overloading our choices, filling our time and distracting our minds, making people even more image conscious than they already are. Screens are also giving people a sense of interacting and participating without the real thing. The result of these changes is low-level anxiety that never really goes away and that occasionally ratchets up to high-level anxiety. Anxiety about looking your best and eating right, pressure to perform your best and get ahead, aching questions about calling, job, finances, frequent comparisons to others. We're being taught to expect and prepare for having it all, so actually making a choice becomes overwhelming for the fear of making the wrong choice because more to think about means more to worry about. He goes on to say, we're already seeing the toll this is taking on the next generation. New research finds that children ages 5 to 17 visited children's hospitals for suicidal thoughts or attempts about twice as often in 2015 as in 2008. We are literally killing ourselves with the way that we think. There's a spiritual battle going on for the hearts and minds of people. Are you being an active participant in the battle, or are you being a passive consumer? We like to say God loves us the way we are. God saves us the way we are, but God doesn't leave us the way we are. He's transforming us into something. When we trust Jesus and begin following him, we are under construction. God wants to change our minds. He wants our thoughts to be biblically formed. No one knew that better than a guy named Paul who wrote a lot of what we have as the New Testament in our Bibles. Paul was a religious leader in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. He had a lot of knowledge and power, and he treated Jesus' followers like enemies and criminals. Paul thought people should be earning their way into God's favor instead of accepting God's grace for failures. Paul thought people should be trying harder, 
Jesus followers were teaching that they should become coming to God as we are broken sinners. Paul tried to shut down the church until he met the resurrected Jesus. That's when everything changed for Paul. Paul's life was turned upside down when he met Jesus. Paul had been religious. Paul knew the Old Testament as well as anyone, but he didn't know God. When Paul met Jesus, he met God and surrendered to God, and we see a radical transformation of Paul's mind. The same energy Paul had put into knowing the rules, he began putting into knowing the ruler. The same zeal that Paul channeled to grow in power, he shifted to going and telling about Jesus' power. The same passion Paul was putting into stopping the church, he put into spreading the church because of how powerful the change was in his mind. In the Bible, in the New Testament, most of it is, much of it is made up of Paul's writings, and they're mostly letters to young churches to teach them how to understand Jesus. Why? Because that was the key to understanding not just the Bible, but life and living. Because Jesus changes everything. The Bible is what helps shed light on that for all of us. In the first century A.D., when Paul lived and when the New Testament was written, Rome was a place of major world influence, not much different than where we live in the world today. There were a lot of different voices competing with the young church to explain how to live. And Paul speaks directly into it. And he teaches how to live for God. And when he writes this letter to the church in Rome, the book that we call Romans, listen to what Paul tells this young church about their minds in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul is explaining to this young church in Rome that understanding God's mercy changes our minds and understanding Jesus' resurrection changes our minds too. Those two sentences, those two verses are packed with understanding of what it means that that. The mercy of God is changing our minds, and the resurrection of Jesus is changing our minds. How does understanding God's mercy change our minds? Well, you look at the beginning of, of Romans 12, verse 1, and Paul comes out of the gate saying, Therefore, brothers and sisters. So who's he speaking to? He's, he's talking to people who are already Christians. He's talking to people who have already trusted and begun following Jesus. And he tells them, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, to live differently. He's telling them, thinking about God's mercy is going to change the way you live. You can't interact with Jesus and not be changed by it. God's character and the way God acts should be on our minds. And we know that through, through the Old Testament and through the life of Jesus because they help illuminate God's mercy for us. That's important because of how we interpret what happens in life. We don't interpret what's true about God based on what we see, feel, and experience. We interpret what we see, feel, and experience based on what's true about God. Let me say that again because this, this, everything we're talking about today hinges on this. 
We don't interpret what's true about God based on what we see, feel, and experience. We interpret what we see, feel, and experience based on what's true about God. Becoming a Christian begins with admitting that you're broken. The way we view the world is broken. Everything about us is broken. We can't see the world correctly because we see ourselves at the center of the world and we act as though everything in this world, including God, revolves around us. But when we come to Christ, we recognize that that's a broken view of the world. We tend to interpret everything in life through the lens of what we want, what we think is right, what we think is best, and we assume that God is going to respond accordingly. That's called sin because we've put ourselves before God. And and as much as we don't like to hear this in 2020 in the United States, sin deserves punishment. You might look at the world around you and think that you're not that bad of a sinner compared to other people, right? We can always find people that are a lot worse than us. But when we think of this notion of sin, we need to understand it in light of God, not merely in light of other people. All sin is an attack on God's authority. Because God has revealed himself to us as a king, all sin is like treason against the God of the universe. That's absolutely going to be punished. Our sins are far worse than we give them credit. But this is the good news. Mercy is not getting the punishment that we deserve. The definition of mercy is not getting the punishment that we deserve. And Paul is telling us that we should live differently in light of the mercy of God. It's not until we understand the extent of our sin that God's mercy captivates us. And when God saves us, he doesn't just remove the penalty for sinning. He gives us a gift to help us combat sinning even more. He offers us a new lens to see everything. That new lens helps us see the whole world and our lives in light of God's mercy. And it changes us, which means despite anything we experience in this world, we can trust God because he's given us an everlasting hope instead of a punishment because he is merciful. Focusing on God's mercy changes life. Believing Jesus died for our sins without looking at the world differently is like getting a prescription for glasses and refusing to ever put them on. Some of us live in this life as though we've trusted Christ at this point, and then we're waiting for heaven for everything to change, but but we don't begin to view our lives and the world we live in through the lens of the gospel, the mercy of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And when we walk through this life saying that we trust Christ, but without the the lens of viewing the world through the gospel, our vision is still warped and we become a danger to other people. Do you understand that? Have you ever walked alongside someone who needs glasses, but they refuse to wear them? It's funny, but have you ever drived with, (laughs) with someone who needs glasses, but refuses to wear them? That's a risk we don't want to take. Yeah. We are not only living incorrectly without the lens of the gospel, we endanger others. How? Because we're going to give them a warped view of who God is and what he's done. 
We are called to be representatives of God, to reflect him to the world, to proclaim him to the world. And if we have the wrong lens, we're going to give people the wrong image of who God is. I remember uh, several years uh, uh, in a row at a church I formerly worked at, I would go to Kenya uh, to, to a remote village, and we would work with people that didn't have many resources for living. And one of the things that we do is, is put on a, a clinic for eyeglasses. And doing that with a language barrier was, was doubly difficult. But it was special because people got to see for the first time. And we got to see them see for the first time. Each passing year, we would, we would bring glasses. And the worse a person's eyesight was, and the longer they had gone through life struggling, the bigger the celebration would be when they got corrective lens for the first time and they could see the world. Do you understand the gift that God has given us with the ability to see the world correctly? Our ability to walk becomes stronger and more courageous. Our ability to navigate life becomes able to honor God. People who know they need mercy are changed when they receive it. Do you know your need for mercy? Do you understand your need for God's mercy? That's the beginning of life transformation. What should we do then when we learn to see? Paul goes on to say, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Living sacrifices would have been a revolutionary idea to this audience in Rome because a typical sacrifice came to die. It was an animal that was brought involuntarily to be slaughtered and burned at the altar. There is no turning back from that. That was sacrifice. But Paul uses this language, living sacrifice. That's revolutionary. What's a living sacrifice? Instead of sacrificing our lives, we're sacrificing the way we live for the way God's mercy compels us to live. That's the ongoing sacrifice that we have presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, not just once when we trust who Jesus is, but over and over again in life as we trust who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's having the perspective in life that God gave his son for us, so we want his son to be the focus of the way that we live. That's what it means to view the world through the lens of the gospel. God, you gave your son for me, so I want you to be the focus of the way I view my time, my self-worth, my relationships. I want you, God, to be the focus of how I view money and sex and work and rest and health. I want you to help me to see correctly in this world. So let me sacrifice my way and adopt your way because that's my true act of worship. How does God's mercy change our minds? In light of what Jesus has done for us, we should want to offer ourselves to God's service, beginning to think like Jesus, who when pressed to do the most difficult thing he would have to do, said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. When we view the lens through God's mercy, we begin to adopt that attitude, not my will, but yours be done, Father. 
How does God's mercy change our minds? We begin to interpret life, our identity, our relationships, and all of our experiences in light of what is true about God, our loving and merciful God. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection changes our minds. What does Paul say about that? Last week, we said that life transformation is joyfully joining the work that God is doing in us. Life transformation, being under construction, is joyfully joining the work that God is doing in us. And here in Romans 12, Paul explains how understanding Jesus' resurrection transforms the way we think. He said, don't be conformed, be transformed. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Those are two very similar words but they have very distinct meanings. Conformed means being made into a pattern. Transformed means being changed into something new. So conformity is adopting an existing pattern. Transformation is becoming something new. Uh, When I think of this distinction that Paul says, don't be conformed, be transformed, I think of this really weird thing that I got to participate in in college. A drum circle. Has anyone been a part of a drum circle before? Okay, I was in in a psychology class. Don't make fun of that. I I got a degree in psychology. I was in a psychology class. And one day in class, as as we were talking about different methods of counseling, the teacher had taken us to uh, a a stage in, in a large gathering room and passed out all these woodblock instruments. And he said, go nuts. Like, beat to your own rhythm, beat to your own pattern, just, just go nuts. Do your own thing. So we all started to do that. And then he, he leaned into a student that was next to him and said, I want you to beat in a consistent and louder rhythm. And I kid you not, there were only about 20, 25 of us in the class. I kid you not, within 60 seconds, we were all following the pattern that was being beat louder and rhythmically. We weren't trying to. We had all adopted that. We were all conformed to the pattern of that one drummer. I think we should ask ourselves, what drum beat do I march to in everyday life? What drum beat do you march to in everyday life? Who or what sets your pattern for living? Is it work? Is it money? Is it fun? Is it harmony in your household? Is it success or justice, some idea that you want to add meaning to the world? Or maybe it's the need to feel significant to others. What is the drumbeat that you're marching to? One good way to try to answer that question is, what are your first thoughts about when you wake up in the morning? That's the drumbeat that you're marching through to begin your day. Paul is saying, don't be conformed to the pattern of what this world says is meaningful. Be transformed. Be made into something new. Be changed into another form. You put these pieces together, and he's telling us, in view of God's mercy, stop living for self-approval. Stop living for the approval of others. And seek the approval of God. And how do we do that? He says, by the renewing of our minds. Renewing, or excuse me, renewal is a very powerful word. Renewal means renovation. The the word in its context means a complete change for the better. Renewal is actually a a word associated with resurrection. In in the uh, 
agriculture field that they, uh, that they lived in, the idea of renewal, that word would be used in the springtime after the winter. The winter represented death and the lack of growth. And springtime would be a time of renewal when life was coming out of death. This is renewal resurrection language. This is what happens when we become Jesus followers. We don't just become better versions of our old self. We become renewed. What does that mean? When we're trapped in sin, we have no ability to please God. When we're freed from sin, we have a new ability to please God. When we're trapped in sin, we have no ability to please God. When we've been renewed by Christ, we have a new ability to please God. That is our renewal. But it doesn't just happen magically. It's transformed by the renewing of our minds, which means a different thought process has to come about. This thought process, as Paul says, hinges on this word, discernment. Discernment is the human capacity to understand life from God's perspective. Discernment is a practical understanding of how to live as God designed us. Discernment is like learning how to read with your new ability to see in light of God's mercy. Learning how to read takes time and practice and effort, but it's worth it. I'm living with a seven-year-old who's currently learning how to read. In between kindergarten and first grade, a transition has happened in him. A transformation has happened to him. And it's beautiful the way he's able to engage in the world in a different way as he's slowly but surely learning how to read. And it's sweet because the whole family plays a part in the process in teaching him how to read better. We celebrate when he's able to read words that he couldn't read the day before, the week before, the year before. It's a beautiful process of transformation, and it's giving him fresh power for life and living. In a similar way, God wants us to be able to read, to discern the things of life through the lens of God's mercy. There are two things that God is compelling us to look at with discernment. The Bible in the world, more specifically, uh, the way we engage in life. Discernment teaches us how to understand the Bible as God desires it to be understood and to understand our place in the world we live in as Christ followers. And listen to this, church. When we begin to see the world in light of God's mercy, the Bible changes from a book of rules to follow to a story about a merciful Savior to follow. Let me say that again. When we begin to see the world in light of God's mercy, the Bible changes from a book of rules to follow to a story about a merciful Savior to follow. Those are drastically different approaches to the Bible and to life. Where do we begin practicing this? Where do we begin learning to understand how to view the world in light of God's design? We have to engage the Bible regularly with a desire to know who God is, to know how God's working, to know the pattern that God has set for our lives. And church, I understand a a book this big can be very intimidating. I remember as a new Christian, I I didn't believe that, that you could really begin to have a grasp on the way the Bible works. It reminds me of when I was a child, uh, in trying to teach my brother and I how to learn to read, my parents would, would give us a newspaper. 
for the younger crowd, a, a newspaper is a printed off section of the, of the internet. <laughs> they would give us a newspaper and, and, and my mom would tell us, I'll give you a, a little bit of money if you can find mistakes. I grew up in West Virginia, so it was lucrative. We would practice reading, and I remember as a young child seeing that massive newspaper and thinking, no way there's only 26 letters. No way I can comprehend all the words that are used. But the more I interacted with it, the more I grew, the more I began to understand. And I assure you, the Bible is the same way. It's very intimidating at the beginning, but the more we interact with it, the more we have other people helping us understand it the more we go to it seeking discernment for life and living, the, the more you're going to find that it's a cohesive story about a savior, not a book of rules to follow. So you have to engage it. And we always engage it better when we have a plan. I encourage you, if you want to be a person whose mind is biblically formed, who's changed by God's mercy, Go ahead and, and put a plan together of reading or listening to a chapter, of day, a, a chapter a day just for the rest of the month. If I could encourage you to start in a certain place, there's a, there's a really underestimated book in the Bible in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is wisdom for life and living. If you want to know about wisdom, go ahead and search Ecclesiastes. It's 12 chapters long. If you started reading or listening to a chapter a day, you'd finish a whole book of the Bible by the end of the month of January. If you do that, I encourage you to, to answer three, ask and answer three questions while you're reading or listening. What's this telling me about God? What claim is being made about how life works? And where can hope and redemption be found? If you read the Bible asking those three questions, I promise you, you will begin to be transformed. What is this telling me about God? What claim is being made about how life works? And where can hope and redemption be found? If you do that regularly in studying the Bible, you know what else is going to happen. You're going to be bringing those questions into the everyday stuff of life. What is this experience? What is this environment? What is this TV show? What is this thing I'm doing on the Internet? What does it say about God? What is it claiming, what claim is it making about how life works and where can hope and redemption be found? And as we're growing in our knowledge and understanding of God's word for discernment, for wisely living, we can apply that into the everyday stuff of life. The more we practice that, the more we grow in that, the more we gain an understanding of the mercy that God has for us, the more we're able to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. God wants us to be transformed. He loves us as we are. He saves us as we are. But he loves us far too much to leave us as we are. He wants our minds to be biblically formed. Regularly asking these questions will help you think in light of God's mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. And this is the beginning of being active participants instead of passive consumers in the everyday stuff of life. Paul told the young church, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, 
I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. May we be active participants in worship, not just when we gather here on Sundays, but in the everyday stuff of life. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to think about the ways we want to serve you, uh, the ways we want to prove ourselves to you, to earn your favor. Um, But Lord, today you help us see your scriptures and the world we live in in view of the mercy that you've shown to us. Lord, help us to, to see the depths of the mercy that we need. Help us to stop comparing ourselves to others or to old versions of ourself and recognize that, that we are far worse than we'd ever imagined. But God, I pray that as you show that to us, that you also show us the extent of the mercy that you've shown to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you teach us to see the world in view of the mercy that you've shown us? Will you transform us by the renewing of our minds in order that our thoughts can drift toward Christ and he can be the lens through which we view everything? Lord, would you do that in us so that we can worship you? We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.